The Colour of Magic by Terry Pratchett, read by Nigel Planer. The Colour of Magic, Prologue In a distant and second-hand set of dimensions, in an astral plane that was never meant to fly, the curling star mists waver and part. See, great Artuin the turtle comes, swimming slowly through the interstellar gulf, hydrogen frost on his ponderous limbs, his huge and ancient shell pocked with meteor craters. Through sea-sized eyes that are crusted with room and asteroid dust, he stares fixedly at the destination. In a brain bigger than a city, with geological slowness, he thinks only of the weight. Most of the weight is of course accounted for by Berelia, Tubul, Great Tufon, and Jerakeen, the four giant elephants upon whose broad and star-tanned shoulders the disk of the world rests. Garlanded by the long waterfall at its vast circumference, and domed by the baby blue vault of heaven. Astropsychology has been as yet unable to establish what they think about. The Great Turtle was a mere hypothesis until the day the small and secretive kingdom of Kroll, whose rimmost mountains project over the rimfall, built a gantry and a pulley arrangement at the tip of the most precipitous crag and lowered several observers over the edge in a quartz-windowed brass vessel to peer through the mist veils. The early astrozoologists, hauled back from their long dangle by enormous teams of slaves, were able to bring back much information about the shape and nature of Ah Tuin and the elephants, but this did not resolve fundamental questions about the nature and purpose of the universe. For example, what was Ah Tuin's actual sex? This vital question, said the astrozoologists with mounting authority, would not be answered until a larger and more powerful gantry was constructed for a deep space vessel. In the meantime, they could only speculate about the revealed cosmos. There was, for example, the theory that Artuin had come from nowhere and would continue at a uniform crawl, or steady gait, into nowhere for all time. This theory was popular among academics. An alternative, favoured by those of a religious persuasion, was that Artuin was crawling from the birthplace to the time of mating, as were all the stars in the sky, which were obviously also carried by giant turtles. When they arrived, they would briefly and passionately mate for the first and only time, and from that fiery union, new turtles would be born to carry a new pattern of worlds. This was known as the Big Bang Hypothesis. Thus it was that a young Cosmoshelonian of the Steady Gate faction, testing a new telescope with which he hoped to make measurements of the precise albedo of Great Artuin's right eye, was on this eventful evening the first outsider to see the smoke rise hubward from the burning of the oldest city in the world. Later that night, he became so engrossed in his studies, he completely forgot about it. Nevertheless, he was the first. There were others. The Colour of Magic Fire roared through the bifurcated city of Ankh-Morpok. 
Where it licked the wizard's quarter, it burned blue and green, and was even laced with strange sparks of the eighth colour, octarine. Where its outriders found their way into the vats and oil stores all along Merchant Street, it progressed in a series of blazing fountains and explosions. In the streets of the perfume blenders, it burned with a sweetness. Where it touched bundles of rare and dry herbs in the storerooms of the drug masters, it made men go mad and talk to God. By now the whole of downtown Moorpork was alight, and the richer and worthier citizens of Ankh, on the far bank, were bravely responding to the situation by feverishly demolishing the bridges. But already the ships in the Moorpork docks, laden with grain, cotton and timber, and coated with tar, were blazing merrily, and their moorings burnt to ashes, were breasting the river Ankh on the ebb tide, igniting riverside palaces and bowers as they drifted like drowning fireflies towards the sea. In any case, sparks were riding the breeze and touching down far across the river in hidden gardens and remote rickyards. The smoke from the merry burning rose miles high in a wind-sculpted black column that could be seen across the whole of the disc world. It was certainly impressive from the cool, dark hilltop a few leagues away, where two figures were watching with considerable interest. The taller of the pair was chewing on a chicken leg and leaning on a sword that was only marginally shorter than the average man. If it wasn't for the air of wary intelligence about him, it might have been supposed that he was a barbarian from the hubland wastes. His partner was much shorter and wrapped from head to toe in a brown cloak. Later, when he has occasion to move, it will be seen that he moves lightly, cat-like. The two had barely exchanged a word in the last twenty minutes, except for a short and inconclusive argument as to whether a particularly powerful explosion had been the oil bond store or the workshop of Kerbal the Enchanter. Money hinged on the fact. Now the big man finished gnawing at the bone and tossed it into the grass, smiling ruefully. "'There go all those little alleyways,' he said. "'I like them.' "'All the treasure houses,' said the small man. He added thoughtfully, "'Do gems burn, I wonder? "'Tis said they're kin to coal.' "'All the gold melting and running down the gutters,' said the big one, ignoring him. "'And all the wine boiling in the barrels.' "'There were rats,' said his brown companion. "'Rats, I'll grant you.' It was no place to be in high summer. That too. One can't help feeling, though, uh, well, uh, a momentary. He trailed off, then brightened. We old, old Friedor at the Crimson Leech eight silver pieces, he added. The little man nodded. They were silent for a while as a whole new series of explosions carved a red line across a hitherto dark section of the greatest city in the world. Then the big man stirred. Weasel? Yes. I wonder who started it. The small swordsman, known as the Weasel, said nothing. He was watching the road in the ruddy light. Few had come that way since the Deosil gate had been one of the first to collapse in a shower of white-hot embers. But two were coming up it now. The Weasel's eyes, always at their sharpest in gloom and half-light, made out the shapes of two mounted men and some sort of low beast behind them, doubtless a rich merchant escaping with as much treasure as he could lay frantic hands on. The weasel said as much to his companion, who sighed. "'The status of footpad ill suits us,' said the barbarian. "'But as you say, times are hard, and there are no soft beds tonight.' He shifted his grip on his sword, and as the leading rider drew near, stepped out onto the road with a hand held up and his face set in a grin nicely calculated to reassure, yet threaten. 
Your pardon, sir, he began. The rider reined in his horse and drew back his hood. The big man looked into a face blotched with superficial burns and punctuated by tufts of singed beard. Even the eyebrows had gone. Bugger off, said the face. You're Brav the Humblander, aren't you? Bravd became aware that he had fumbled the initiative. The shape and cosmology of the disk system are perhaps worthy of note at this point. There are, of course, two major directions on the disk, hubward and rimward. But since the disk itself revolves at the rate of once every 800 days, in order to distribute the weight fairly upon its supportive pachyderms, according to the Refogul of Kroll, there are also two lesser directions, which are turnwise and widdershins. Since the disk's tiny orbiting sunlet maintains a fixed orbit while the majestic disk turns slowly beneath it, it will be readily deduced that a disk year consists of not four, but eight seasons. The summers are those times when the sun rises or sets at the nearest point on the rim, the winters those occasions when it rises or sets at a point around 90 degrees along the circumference. Thus, in the lands around the Circle Sea, the year begins on Hogswatch night, progresses through a spring prime to its first midsummer, Small God's Eve, which is followed by Autumn Prime and straddling the half-year point on cruel tide Winter Secundus, also known as the Spindle Winter, since at this time the sun rises in the direction of spin. Then comes Secundus Spring, with Summer Two on its heels, the three-quarter mark of the year being the Night of All's Fallow, the one night of the year, according to legend, when witches and warlocks stay in bed. Then, drifting leaves and frosty nights drag on towards back Spindle Winter and a new Hogswatch Night nestling like a frozen jewel at its heart. Since the hub is never closely warmed by the weak sun, the lands there are locked in permafrost. The rim, on the other hand, is a region of sunny islands and balmy days. There are, of course, eight days in a disc week and eight colours in its light spectrum. Eight is a number of some considerable occult significance on the disc and must never, ever be spoken by a wizard. Precisely why all the above should be so is not clear, but it goes some way to explain why on the disc the gods are not so much worshipped as blamed. Just go away, will you, said the rider. I haven't got time for you, do you understand? He looked around and added, That goes for your shadow-loving flea-bag partner too, wherever he's hiding. The weasel stepped up to the horse and peered at the dishevelled figure. Why, it's Rincewind the wizard, isn't it? He said in tones of delight, meanwhile filing the wizard's description of him in his memory for leisurely vengeance. I thought I recognised the voice. Bravd spat and sheathed his sword. It was seldom worth tangling with wizards. They so rarely had any treasure worth speaking of. He talks pretty big for a gutter wizard, he muttered. You don't understand at all, said the wizard wearily. I'm so scared of you, my spine has turned to jelly. It's just that I'm suffering from an overdose of terror right now. I mean, when I've got over that, then I'll have time to be decently frightened of you. The weasel pointed towards the burning city. You've been through that? he asked. The wizard rubbed a red raw hand across his eyes. I was there when it started. See him, back there? He pointed back down the road to where his travelling companion was still approaching, having adopted a method of riding that involved falling out of the saddle every few seconds. Well, said Weasel. He started it, said Rincewind, simply. Braft and Weasel looked at the figure, now hopping across the road with one foot in a stirrup. Fire-raiser, is he? said Braft at last. 
No, said Rincewind, not precisely. Let's just say that if complete and utter chaos was lightning, then he'd be the sort to stand on a hilltop in a thunderstorm, wearing wet copper armour and shouting, All gods are bastards. Got any food? There's some chicken, said Weasel, in exchange for a story. What's his name? said Braft, who tended to lag behind in conversations. Two flower. Two flower, said Braft. What a funny name. You, said Rincewind, dismounting, do not know the half of it. Chicken, did you say? Deviled, said Weasel. The wizard groaned. That reminds me, added the weasel, snapping his fingers. There was a really big explosion about oh, half an hour ago. That was the oil bond store going up, said Rincewind, wincing at the memory of the burning rain. Weasel turned and grinned expectantly at his companion, who grunted and handed over a coin from his pouch. Then there was a scream from the roadway, cut off abruptly. Rincewind did not look up from his chicken. One of the things he can't do, he can't ride a horse, he said. Then he stiffened, as if sandbagged by a sudden recollection, gave a small yelp of terror and dashed into the gloom. When he returned, the being called Two Flower was hanging limply over his shoulder. It was small and skinny, and dressed very oddly in a pair of knee-length breeches and a shirt in such violent and vivid conflict of colours that Weasel's fastidious eye was offended even in the half-light. "'No bones broken by the feel of things,' said Rincewind. He was breathing heavily. Braft winked at the weasel and went to investigate the shape that they assumed was a pack animal. "'You'd be wise to forget it,' said the wizard, without looking up from his examination of the unconscious two-flower. "'Believe me, a power protects it.' "'A spell?' said Weasel, squatting down. "'No, but magic of a kind, I think. Not the usual sort.' I mean, it can turn gold into copper while at the same time it is still gold. It makes men rich by destroying their possessions. It allows the weak to walk fearlessly among thieves. It passes through the strongest doors to leech the most protected treasuries. Even now it has me enslaved, so that I must follow this madman willy-nilly and protect him from harm. It's stronger than you, Bravd. It is, I think, more cunning even than you, Weasel. What is it called, then, this mighty magic? Rincewind shrugged. In our tongue, it is called reflected sounders of underground spirits. Is there any wine? You must know that I am not without artifice where magic is concerned, said Weasel. Only last year did I, assisted by my friend there, part the notoriously powerful Archmage of Umitri from his stuff, his belt of moon jewels, and his life in that approximate order. I do not fear this reflected sound of underground spirits of which you speak. However, he added, you engage my interest. Perhaps you would care to tell me more. Bravd looked at the shape on the road. It was closer now and clearer in the pre-dawn light. It looked for all the world like a... Uh... A box on legs, he said. I'll tell you about it, said Rincewind. If there's any wine, that is. Down in the valley there was a roar and a hiss. Someone more thoughtful than the rest had ordered to be shut the big river gates that were at the point where the Ark flowed out of the Twin City. Denied its usual egress, the river had burst its banks and was pouring down the fire-ravaged streets. Soon the continent of flame became a series of islands, 
each one growing smaller as the dark tide rose. And up from the city of fumes and smoke rose a broiling cloud of steam covering the stars. Weasel thought that it looked like some dark fungus or mushroom. The twin city of proud Ankh and pestilent Morpork, of which all the other cities of time and space are, as it were, mere reflections, has stood many assaults in its long and crowded history, and has always risen to flourish again. So the fire, and its subsequent flood, which destroyed everything left that was not flammable, and added a particularly noisome flux to the survivors' problems, did not mark its end. Rather, it was a fiery punctuation mark, a coal-like comma, or salamander semicolon, in a continuing story. Several days before these events, a ship came up the Ark on the dawn tide and fetched up, among many others, in the maze of wharfs and docks on the Moorpork shore. It carried a cargo of pink pearls, milk nuts, pumice, some official letters for the patrician of Ankh, and a man. It was the man who engaged the attention of Blind Hugh, one of the beggars on early duty at Pearl Dock. He nudged Cripplewire in the ribs and pointed wordlessly. Now the stranger was standing on the quayside, watching several straining seamen carry a large brass-bound chest down the gangplank. Another man, obviously the captain, was standing beside him. There was about the seaman every nerve in Blind Hugh's body which tended to vibrate in the presence of even a small amount of impure gold at fifty paces screamed into his brain, the air of one anticipating imminent enrichment. Sure enough, when the chest had been deposited on the cobbles, the stranger reached into a pouch, and there was the flash of a coin, several coins, gold. Blind Hugh, his body twanging like a hazel rod in the presence of water, whistled to himself. Then he nudged Wah again, and sent him scurrying off down a nearby alley into the heart of the city. When the captain walked back onto his ship, leaving the newcomer looking faintly bewildered on the quayside, Blind Hugh snatched up his begging cup and made his way across the street with an ingratiating leer. At the sight of him, the stranger started to fumble urgently with his money pouch. "'Good day to thee, sire,' Blind Hugh began, and found himself looking up into a face with four eyes in it. He turned to run. "'Eh?' said the stranger, and grabbed his arm. Hugh was aware that the sailors lining the rail of the ship were laughing at him. At the same time, his specialised senses detected an overpowering impression of money. He froze. The stranger let go and quickly thumbed through a small black book he had taken from his belt. Then he said, Hello. What? said Hugh. The man looked blank. Hello, he repeated rather louder than necessary and so carefully that Hugh could hear the vowels tinkling into place. "'Hello yourself?' Hugh riposted. The stranger smiled widely, fumbled yet again in the pouch. This time his hand came out holding a large gold coin. It was in fact slightly larger than an eight-thousand-dollar Ankian crown, and the design on it was unfamiliar. But it spoke inside Hugh's mind in a language he understood perfectly. My current owner, it said, is in need of succour and assistance. Why not give it to him so you and me can go off somewhere and enjoy ourselves? Subtle changes in the beggar's posture made the stranger feel more at ease. He consulted the small book again. 
I wish to be directed to an hotel, tavern, lodging house, in hospice, caravanserai, he said. What, all of them? said Hugh, taken aback. Hmm? said the stranger. Hugh was aware that a small crowd of fishwives, shellfish diggers and freelance gawpers were watching them with interest. Look, he said, I know a good tavern. Is that enough? He shuddered to think of the gold coin escaping from his life. He'd keep that one even if Humor confiscated all the rest. And the big chest that comprised most of the newcomer's luggage looked to be full of gold, Hugh decided. The four-eyed man looked at his book. I would like to be directed to an hotel, place of repose, tavern. Uh, yes, all right, come on then, said Hugh hurriedly. He picked up one of the bundles and walked away quickly. The stranger, after a moment's hesitation, strolled after him. A train of thought shunted its way through Hugh's mind. Getting the newcomer to the broken drum so easily was a stroke of luck, no doubt of it, and Umor would probably reward him. But for all his new acquaintance's mildness, there was something about him that made Hugh uneasy, and for the life of him he couldn't figure out what it was. Not the two extra eyes, odd though they were. There was something else. He glanced back. The little man was ambling along in the middle of the street, looking around him with an expression of keen interest. Something else Hugh saw nearly made him gibber. The massive wooden chest, which he had last seen resting solidly on the quayside, was following on its master's heels with a gentle rocking gait. Slowly, in case a sudden movement on his part might break his fragile control over his own legs, Hugh bent slightly so that he could see under the chest. There were lots and lots of little legs. Very deliberately, Hugh turned around and walked very carefully towards the broken drum. Odd, said Imor. He had this big wooden chest, added Cripplewire. He'd have to be a merchant or a spy, said Imor. He pulled a scrap of meat from the cutlet in his hand and tossed it into the air. It hadn't reached the zenith of its arc before a black shape detached itself from the shadows in the corner of the room and swooped down, taking the morsel in mid-air. A merchant or a spy, repeated Emor. I'd prefer a spy. A spy pays for himself twice, because there's always the reward when we turn him in. What do you think, Withel? Opposite Emor, the second greatest thief in Ankh-Morpork half closed his one eye and shrugged. I've checked on the ship, he said. It's a freelance trader. Does the occasional run to the Brown Islands? People there are just savages. They don't understand about spies, and I expect they eat merchants. He looked a bit like a merchant, volunteered War. Except he wasn't fat. There was a flutter of wings at the window. Emor shifted his bulk out of the chair and crossed the room, coming back with a large raven. After he'd unfastened the message capsule from its leg, it flew up to join its fellows lurking among the rafters. Withel regarded it without love, 
Emor's ravens were notoriously loyal to their master, to the extent that Withel's one attempt to promote himself to the rank of greatest thief in Ark Morpork had cost their master's right-hand man his left eye. But not his life, however. Emor never grudged a man his ambitions. Bay twelve, said Emor, tossing the little file aside and unrolling a tiny scroll within. Gorin the cat, said Withel automatically. On station, up in the Gong Tower at the Temple of Small Gods. He says Hugh has taken our stranger to the Broken Drum. Well, that's good enough. Broadman is a friend of ours, isn't he? Aye, said Withel. If he knows what's good for trade. Among his customers has been your man, Gorin, said Imor pleasantly. For he writes here about a box on legs. If I read this scrawl correctly, he looked at Withel over the top of the paper. Withel looked away. He will be disciplined, he said flatly. Wah looked at the man leaning back in his chair, his black-clad frame resting as nonchalantly as a rimland puma on a jungle branch, and decided that Gorin atop small god's temple would soon be joining those little deities in the multifold dimensions of beyond. And he owed Wah three copper pieces. Emor crumpled the note and tossed it into a corner. I think we'll wander along to the drum later on, Withel. Perhaps, too, we may try this beer that your men find so tempting. Withel said nothing. Being Emor's right-hand man was like being gently flogged to death with scented bootlaces. The twin city of Ark Morpork foremost of all the cities bounding the Circle Sea, was as a matter of course the home of a large number of gangs, thieves' guilds, syndicates and similar organisations. This was one of the reasons for its wealth. Most of the humbler folk on the Widdishin side of the river, in Moorpork's mazy alleys, supplemented their meagre incomes by filling some small role for one or other of the competing gangs. So it was that by the time Hugh and Twoflower entered the courtyard of the Broken Drum, the leaders of a number of them were aware that someone had arrived in the city who appeared to have much treasure. Some reports from the more observant spies included details about a book that told the stranger what to say, and a box that walked by itself. These facts were immediately discounted. No magician capable of such enchantments ever came within a mile of more pork docks. It still being that hour when most of the city was just rising or about to go to bed, there were few people in the drum to watch Two Flower descend the stairs. When the luggage appeared behind him and started to lurch confidently down the steps, the customers at the rough wooden tables, as one man, looked suspiciously at their drinks. Broadman was browbeating the small troll who swept the bar when the trio walked past him. What in hell's that? he said. Just don't talk about it, hissed Hugh. Twoflower was already thumbing through his book. What's he doing? said Broadman, arms akimbo. It tells him what to say. I know it sounds ridiculous, muttered Hugh. How can a book tell a man what to say? I wish for an accommodation... A uh, room, lodgings, the lodging house full board, are your rooms clean? A room with a view, what is your rate for one night? Said Two Flower in one breath. Broadman looked at Hugh. 
The beggar shrugged. He's got plenty money, he said. Tell him it's three copper pieces then, and that thing will have to go in the stable. Hmm? said the stranger. Broadman held up three thick red fingers, and the man's face was suddenly a sunny display of comprehension. He reached into his pouch and laid three large gold pieces in Broadman's palm. Broadman stared at them. They represented about four times the worth of the broken drum, staff included. He looked at Hugh. There was no help there. He looked at the stranger. He swallowed. Yes, he said in an unnaturally high voice. And then there's meals, of course. Um, you understand? Yes? Food? You eat? No? He made the appropriate motions. Foot? said the little man. Yes, said Broadman, beginning to sweat. Have a look in your little book. I should. The man opened the book and ran a finger down one page. Broadman, who could read after a fashion, peered over the top of the volume. What he saw made no sense. Food, said the stranger. Yes, cutlet, hash, chop, stew, ragu, fricassee, mince, collops, souffle, dumpling, blancmange, sorbet, gruel, sausage, not to have a sausage, beans without a bean, kickshaws, jelly, jam, giblets. He beamed at Broadman. All that, said the innkeeper weakly. It's just the way he talks, said Hugh. Don't ask me why, he just does. All eyes in the room were watching the stranger, except for a pair belonging to Rincewind the wizard, who was sitting in the darkest corner nursing a mug of very small beer. He was watching the luggage. Watch Rincewind, look at him. Scrawny, like most wizards, and clad in a dark red robe on which a few mystic sigils were embroidered in tarnished sequins. Some might have taken him for a mere apprentice enchanter, who had run away from his master out of defiance, boredom, fear, and a lingering taste for heterosexuality. Yet around his neck was a chain bearing the bronze octagon that marked him as an alumnus of the Unseen University, the High School of Magic, whose time and space transcendent campus is never precisely here or there. Graduates were usually destined for mageship at least, but Rincewind, after an unfortunate event, had left knowing only one spell and made a living of sorts around the town by capitalising on an innate gift for languages. He avoided work as a rule, but had a quickness of wit that put his acquaintances in mind of a bright rodent, and he knew sapient pearwood when he saw it. He was seeing it now, and he didn't quite believe it. An archmage, by dint of great effort and much expenditure of time, might eventually obtain a small staff made from the timber of the sapient pear tree. It grew only on the sites of ancient magic. There were probably no more than two such staffs in all the cities of the Circle Sea. A large chest of it, Rincewind tried to work it out, and decided that even if the box were crammed with star opals and sticks of auriculatum, then the contents would not be worth one-tenth of the price of the container. A vein started to throb in his forehead. He stood up and made his way to the trio. "'May I be of assistance?' he ventured. "'Shove off, Rincewind,' 
snarled Broadman. "'I only thought it might be useful to address this gentleman in his own tongue,' said the wizard gently. "'He's doing all right on his own,' said the innkeeper, but took a few steps backward. Rincewind smiled politely at the stranger and tried a few words of Chimaran. He prided himself on his fluency in the tongue, but the stranger only looked bemused. "'It won't work,' said Hugh knowledgeably. "'It's the book, you see. It tells him what to say. Magic!' Rincewind switched to High Borogravian, to Vanglemesht, Sumtri, and even Black Orug, the language with no nouns and only one adjective, which is obscene. Each was met with polite incomprehension. In desperation he tried heathen trob, and the little man's face split into a delighted grin. "'At last,' he said, "'my good sir, this is remarkable!' Although in trob the last word in fact became a thing which may happen but once in the usable lifetime of a canoe hollowed diligently by axe and fire from the tallest diamond wood tree that grows in the noted diamond wood forests on the lower slopes of Mount Awayawa, home of the fire gods, or so it is said. What was all that? said Broadman, suspiciously. What did the innkeeper say? said the little man. Rincewind swallowed. Broadman, he said. Two mugs of your best ale, please. You can understand him? Oh, sure. Well, uh, tell him he's very welcome. Tell him um, breakfast is uh, one gold piece. For a moment, Broadman's face looked as though some vast internal struggle was going on, and then he added with a burst of generosity, I'll throw yours in too. Stranger said Rincewind levelly. If you stay here, you will be knifed or poisoned by nightfall. But don't stop smiling, or so will I. Oh, come now, said the stranger, looking around. This looks like a delightful place, a genuine, more porkian tavern. I've heard so much about them, you know, all these quaint old beams, and so reasonable, too. Rincewind glanced around quickly, in case some leakage of enchantment from the magician's quarter across the river had momentarily transported them to some other place. No, this was still the interior of the drum, its walls stained with smoke, its floor a compost of old rushes and nameless beetles, its sour beer not so much purchased as merely hired for a while. He tried to fit the image around the word quaint, or rather the nearest trob equivalent, which was that pleasant oddity of design found in the little coral houses of the sponge-eating pygmies on the Orohai Peninsula. His mind reeled back from the effort. The visitor went on, My name is Two Flower, and extended his hand. Instinctively, the other three looked down to see if there was a coin in it. Pleased to meet you, said Rincewind. I'm Rincewind. Look, I wasn't joking. This is a tough place. Good, exactly what I wanted. Eh? What is this stuff in the mugs? This, um, beer. Thanks, Broadman, yes, uh, beer, you know, beer. Ah, the so typical drink. A small gold piece will be sufficient payment, do you think? I do not want to cause offence. It was already half out of his purse. Yeah, croaked Rincewind. I mean, no, it won't cause offence. 
Good. You say this is a tough place. Frequented, you mean, by heroes and men of adventure? Rincewind considered this. Yes, he managed. Excellent. I would like to meet some. An explanation occurred to the wizard. Ah, he said, you've come to hire mercenaries. Warriors who fight for the tribe with the most milk-nut meal. Oh, no, I just want to meet them, so that when I get home I can say that I did it. Rincewind thought that a meeting with most of the drum's clientele would mean that Two-Flower never went home again, unless he lived downriver and happened to float past. "'Where is your home?' he inquired. Broadman had slipped away into some back room, he noticed. Hugh was watching them suspiciously from a nearby table. "'Have you heard of the city of Bess Pelagic?' "'Well, I didn't spend much time in Trob. I was uh, just passing through, you know.' "'Oh, it's not in Trob. I speak Trob because there are many Betrobby sailors in our ports. Bess Pelagic is the major seaport of the Agatean Empire.' "'Never heard of it, I'm afraid.' Two-Flower raised his eyebrows. "'No, it is quite big. You sail turn-wise from the Brown Islands for about a week, and there it is. Are you all right?' He hurried round the table and patted the wizard on the back. Rincewind choked on his beer. The counterweight continent. Three streets away, an old man dropped a coin into a saucer of acid and swirled it gently. Broadman waited impatiently, ill at ease in a room made noisome by vats and bubbling beakers and lined with shelves containing shadowy shapes suggestive of skulls and stuffed impossibilities. Will? he demanded. "'One cannot hurry these things,' said the old alchemist peevishly. "'Assaying takes time. Ah!' He prodded the saucer, where the coin now lay in a swirl of green colour. He made some calculations on a scrap of parchment. "'Exceptionally interesting,' he said at last. "'Is it genuine?' The old man pursed his lips. It depends on how you define the term, he said. If you mean, is this coin the same as, say, a fifty-dollar piece, then the answer is no. I knew it, screamed the innkeeper and started towards the door. I'm not sure that I'm making myself clear, said the alchemist. Broadman turned round angrily. What do you mean? Well, you see... What with one thing and another, our coinage has been somewhat watered over the years. The gold content of the average coin is barely four parts in twelve, the balance being made up of silver, copper. What of it? I said this coin isn't like ours. It is pure gold. After Broadman had left at a run, the alchemist spent some time staring at the ceiling. Then he drew out a very small piece of thin parchment, rummaged for a pen amongst the debris on his workbench, and wrote a very short, small message. Then he went over to his cages of white doves, black cockerels and other laboratory animals. From one cage he removed a glossy-coated rat, rolled the parchment into the file attached to a hind leg, and let the animal go. It sniffed around the floor for a moment, then disappeared down a hole in the far wall. 
At about this time, a hitherto unsuccessful fortune-teller, living on the other side of the block, chanced to glance into her scrying bowl, gave a small scream, and within the hour had sold her jewellery, various magical accoutrements, most of her clothes, and almost all her other possessions that could not be conveniently carried on the fastest horse she could buy. The fact that later on, when her horse collapsed in flames, she herself died in a freak landslide in the Moorpork Mountains, proves that death, too, has a sense of humour. Also, at about the same moment as the homing rat disappeared into the maze of runs under the city, scurrying along in faultless obedience to an ancient instinct, the patrician of Ankh-Morpork picked up the letters delivered that morning by Albatross. He looked pensively at the topmost one again, and summoned his chief of spies. And in the broken drum, Rincewind was listening open-mouthed as Twoflower talked. So I decided to see for myself the little man was saying. Eight years saving up this has cost me, but worth every half rhino. I mean, here I am, in Ankh-Moor Pork, famed in song and story, I mean, in the streets that have known the tread of Herrick Whiteblade, Harun the Barbarian, and Bravd the Hublander, and the Weasel. It's all just like I imagined, you know. Rincewind's face was a mask of fascinated horror. I just couldn't stand it any more back in Bespelagic, Twoflower went on blithely, sitting at a desk all day, just adding up columns of figures, just a pension to look forward to at the end of it. Where's the romance in that? Twoflower, I thought, it's now or never. You don't just have to listen to stories, you can go there. Now's the time to stop hanging around the docks listening to sailors' tales, so I compiled a phrasebook and bought a passage on the next ship to the Brown Islands. "'No guards?' murmured Rincewind. "'No. Why? What have I got that's worth stealing?' Rincewind coughed. "'You have, um, gold?' he said. "'Oh, barely two thousand rhino. Hardly enough to keep a man alive for more than a month or two. At home, that is. I imagine they might stretch a bit further here.' "'Would a rhino be one of those big gold coins?' said Rincewind. Yes! Twoflower looked worriedly at the wizard over the top of his strange seeing lenses. Will two thousand be sufficient, do you think? Uh, yeah, croaked Rincewind. I mean, yes, sufficient. Good. Um, is everyone in the Agatean Empire as rich as you? Me? Rich? <laughs> Bless you! Whatever put that idea into your head? I am but a poor clerk. Did I pay the innkeeper too much, do you think? Twoflower added. Um, he might have settled for less, Rincewind conceded. Ah, I shall know better next time. I can see I have a lot to learn. An idea occurs to me, Rincewind. Would you perhaps consent to be employed as a, I don't know, perhaps the word guide would fit the circumstances? I think I could afford to pay you a rhino a day. Rincewind opened his mouth to reply, but felt the words huddle together in his throat, reluctant to emerge in a world that was rapidly going mad. Twoflower blushed. I have offended you, he said. It was an impertinent request to make of a professional man such as yourself. Doubtless you have many projects you wish to return to. Some works of high magic, no doubt. No said Rincewind faintly. Not just at present. Uh, 
A rhino, you say? Uh, one a day? Uh, every day? I think perhaps in the circumstances I should make it one and a half rhino per day, plus any out-of-pocket expenses, of course. The wizard rallied magnificently. That will be fine, he said. Great. Two-Flower reached into his pouch and took out a large round gold object, glanced at it for a moment and slipped it back. Rincewind didn't get a chance to see it properly. I think, said the tourist, that I would like a little rest now. It was a long crossing. And then perhaps you would care to call back at noon and we can take a look at the city. Sure. Then please be good enough to ask the innkeeper to show me to my room. Rincewind did so, and watched the nervous broadman, who had arrived at a gallop from some back room, lead the way up the wooden steps behind the bar. After a few seconds, the luggage got up and pattered across the floor after them. Then the wizard looked down at the six big coins in his hand. Twoflower had insisted on paying his first four days' wages in advance. Hugh nodded and smiled encouragingly. Rincewind snarled at him. As a student wizard, Rincewind had never achieved high marks in precognition. But now unused circuits in his brain were throbbing, and the future might as well have been engraved in bright colours on his eyeballs. The space between his shoulder blades began to itch. The sensible thing to do, he knew, was to buy a horse. It would have to be a fast one, and expensive. Offhand, Rincewind couldn't think of any horse dealer he knew who was rich enough to give change out of almost a whole ounce of gold. And then, of course, the other five coins would help him set up a useful practice at some safe distance, say, two hundred miles. That would be the sensible thing. But what would happen to Two-Flower, all alone in a city where even the cockroaches had an unerring instinct for gold? A man would have to be a real heel to leave him. The patrician of Ankh-Morpork smiled, but with his mouth only. The hub gate, you say? he murmured. The guard captain saluted smartly. Aye, lord, we had to shoot the horse before he would stop. Which, by a fairly direct route, brings you here, said the patrician, looking down at Rincewind. And what have you got to say for yourself? It was rumoured that an entire wing of the Patrician's Palace was filled with clerks who spent their days collating and updating all the information collected by their master's exquisitely organised spy system. Rincewind didn't doubt it. He glanced towards the balcony that ran down one side of the audience room. A sudden run, a nimble jump, a sudden hail of crossbow quarrels. He shuddered. The patrician cradled his chins in a beringed hand and regarded the wizard with eyes as small and hard as beads. Let me see, he said. Oath-breaking, the theft of a horse, uttering false coinage. Yes, I think it's the arena for you, Rincewind. This was too much. I didn't steal the horse, I bought it fairly. But with false coinage. Technical theft, you see. But those Rhino are solid gold. Rhino? The patrician rolled one of them around in his thick fingers. Is that what they're called? How interesting. But as you point out, they are not very similar to dollars. Well, of course they're not. Ah, you admit it, then. Rincewind opened his mouth to speak, thought better of it, and shut it again. 
quite so. And on top of these there is, of course, the moral obloquy attendant on the cowardly betrayal of a visitor to this shore. For shame, Rincewind. The patrician waved a hand vaguely. The guards behind Rincewind backed away, and their captain took a few paces to the right. Rincewind suddenly felt very alone. It is said that when a wizard is about to die, death himself turns up to claim him, instead of delegating the task to a subordinate, such as disease or famine, as is usually the case. Rincewind looked around nervously for a tall figure in black. Wizards, even failed wizards, have, in addition to rods and cones, in their eyeballs the tiny octagons that enable them to see into the far octarine the basic colour of which all other colours are merely pale shadows impinging on normal four-dimensional space. It is said to be a sort of fluorescent greenish-yellow-purple. Was that a flickering shadow in the corner? Of course, said the patrician, I could be merciful. The shadow disappeared. Rincewind looked up, an expression of insane hope on his face. Yes, he said. The patrician waved a hand again. Rincewind saw the guards leave the chamber. Alone with the overlord of the Twin Cities, he almost wished they would come back. "'Come hither, Rincewind,' said the patrician. He indicated a bowl of savouries on a low onyx table by the throne. "'Would you care for a crystallised jellyfish?' "'No?' "'Um,' said Rincewind, uh, "'no.' "'Now, I want you to listen very carefully to what I am about to say,' said the patrician amiably. "'Otherwise, you will die. In an interesting fashion, over a period. Please stop fidgeting like that. "'Since you are a wizard of sorts, you are, of course, aware that we live upon a world shaped, as it were, like a disc.' and that there is said to exist towards the far rim a continent which, though small, is equal in weight to all the mighty land masses in this hemicircle, and that this, according to ancient legend, is because it is largely made of gold? Rincewind nodded. Who hadn't heard of the counterweight continent? Some sailors even believed the childhood tales and sailed in search of it. Of course, they returned either empty-handed or not at all, probably eaten by giant turtles, in the opinion of more serious mariners, because, of course, the counterweight continent was nothing more than a solar myth. It does, of course, exist, said the patrician. Although it is not made of gold, it is true that gold is a very common metal there. Most of the mass is made up by vast deposits of octeron deep within the crust. Now, it will be obvious to an incisive mind like yours that the existence of the counterweight continent poses a deadly threat to our people here. He paused, looking at Rincewind's open mouth. He sighed. He said, Do you by some chance fail to follow me? Yeah, said Rincewind. He swallowed and licked his lips. I mean, no. I mean, well, gold. I see, said the patrician sweetly. You feel perhaps that it would be a marvellous thing to go to the counterweight continent and bring back a shipload of gold. Rincewind had a feeling that some sort of trap was being set. 
Yes, he ventured. And if every man on the shores of the Circle Sea had a mountain of gold of his own, would that be a good thing? What would happen? Think carefully. Rincewind's brow furrowed. He thought, we'd all be rich. The way the temperature fell at his remark told him that it was not the correct one. I may as well tell you, Rincewind, that there is some contact between the lords of the Circle Sea and the emperor of the Agatean Empire, as it is styled. The patrician went on. It is only very slight. There is little common ground between us. We have nothing they want, and they have nothing we can afford. It is an old empire, Rincewind, old and cunning and cruel, and very, very rich. So we exchange fraternal greetings by albatross mail at infrequent intervals. One such letter arrived this morning. A subject of the emperor appears to have taken it into his head to visit our city. It appears he wishes to look at it. Only a madman would possibly undergo all the privations of crossing the Turnwise Ocean in order merely to look at anything. However, he landed this morning. He might have met a great hero, or the cunningest of thieves, or some wise and great sage. He met you. He has employed you as a guide. You will be a guide, Rincewind, to this looker, this two-flower. You will see that he returns home with a good report of our little homeland. What do you say to that? Um, uh, thank you, Lord, said Rincewind miserably. There is another point, of course. It would be a tragedy should anything untoward happen to our little visitor. It would be dreadful if he were to die, for example. Dreadful for the whole of our land, because the Agatean Emperor looks after his own, and could certainly extinguish us at a nod, a mere nod. And that would be dreadful for you, Rincewind, because in the weeks that remained before the Empire's huge mercenary fleet arrived, certain of my servants would occupy themselves about your person, in the hope that the avenging captains on their arrival might find their anger tempered by the sight of your still-living body. There are certain spells that can prevent the life departing from a body, be it never so abused, and I see by your face that understanding dawns. Uh, Yag. I beg your pardon? Um, yes, Lord, I'll see to it. I mean, I'll, I'll endeavour to see. I mean, well, I'll, I'll, I'll try and look after him and, and see he comes to no harm. And after that I'll get a job juggling snowballs through hell, he added bitterly in the privacy of his own skull. Capital! I gather already that you and... Two flower are on the best of terms. An excellent beginning. When he returns safely to his homeland, you will not find me ungrateful. I shall probably even dismiss the charges against you. Thank you, Rincewind, you may go. Rincewind decided not to ask for the return of his five remaining Rhinu. 
He backed away cautiously. Oh, and there is one other thing, the patrician said, as the wizard groped for the door handles. Yes, lord, he replied with a sinking heart. I'm sure you will dream of trying to escape from your obligations by fleeing the city. I judge you to be a born city person, but you may be sure that the lords of the other cities will be appraised of these conditions by nightfall. I assure you, the thought never even crossed my mind, Lord. Indeed, then if I were you, I'd sue my face for slander. Rincewind reached the broken drum at a dead run, and was just in time to collide with a man who came out backwards fast. The stranger's haste was in part accounted for by the spear in his chest. He bubbled noisily and dropped dead at the wizard's feet. Rincewind peered around the doorframe and jerked back as a heavy throwing axe whirred past like a partridge. It was probably a lucky throw, a second cautious glance told him. The dark interior of the drum was a broil of fighting men, quite a number of them, a third and longer glance confirmed, in bits. Rincewind swayed back as a wildly thrown stool sailed past and smashed on the far side of the street. Then he dived in. He was wearing a dark robe, made darker by constant wear and irregular washings. In the raging gloom, no one appeared to notice a shadowy shape that shuffled desperately from table to table. At one point, a fighter, staggering back, trod on what felt like fingers. A number of what felt like teeth bit his ankle. He yelped shrilly and dropped his guard just sufficiently for a sword, swung by a surprised opponent, to skewer him. Rincewind reached the stairway, sucking his bruised hand and running with a curious bent-over gait. A crossbow quarrel thunked into the banister rail above him, and he gave a whimper. He made the stairs in one breathless rush, expecting at any moment another more accurate shot. In the corridor above, he stood upright, gasping, and saw the floor in front of him scattered with bodies. A big, black-bearded man with a bloody sword in one hand was trying the door handle. "'Hey!' screamed Rincewind. The man looked around and then almost absent-mindedly drew a short throwing knife from his bandolier and hurled it. Rincewind ducked. There was a brief scream behind him as the crossbow man, sighting down his weapon, dropped it and clutched at his throat. The big man was already reaching for another knife. Rincewind looked around wildly and then with wild improvisation drew himself up into a wizardly pose. His hand was flung back. Esonaitai, Kaiorucha... Beazleblor. The man hesitated, his eyes flicking nervously from side to side as he waited for the magic. The conclusion that there was not going to be any hit him at the same time as Rincewind, whirring wildly down the passage, kicked him sharply in the groin. As he screamed and clutched at himself, the wizard dragged open the door, sprang inside, slammed it behind him, and threw his body against it, panting. It was quiet in here. There was Two Flower, sleeping peacefully on the low bed and there, at the foot of the bed, was the luggage. Rincewind took a few steps forward, cupidity moving him as easily as if he were on little wheels. The chest was open. There were bags inside, and in one of them he caught the gleam of gold. For a moment greed overcame caution, and he reached out gingerly. But what was the use? He'd never lived to enjoy it. Reluctantly he drew his hand back, and was surprised to see a slight tremor in the chest's open lid. Hadn't it shifted slightly, as though rocked by the wind? Rincewind looked at his fingers, and then at the lid. It looked heavy, and was bound with brass bands. 
It was quite still now. What wind? Rinse wind! Two flowers sprang off the bed. The wizard jumped back, wrenching his features into a smile. My dear chap, right on time. We'll just have lunch, and then I'm sure you've got a wonderful programme lined up for this afternoon. Um, that's great. Rincewind took a deep breath. Look, he said desperately, let's eat somewhere else. There's been a bit of a fight down below. A tavern brawl? Why didn't you wake me up? Well, you see, I... What? I thought I made myself clear this morning, Rincewind. I want to see genuine, more porkian life. The slave market, the whore pits, the temple of small gods, the beggar's guild, and a genuine tavern brawl. A faint note of suspicion entered Two Flowers' voice. You do have them, don't you? You know, people swinging on chandelier, sword fights over the table, the sort of thing Hrun the Barbarian and the Weasel are always getting involved in. You know, excitement! Rincewind sat down heavily on the bed. You want to see a fight, he said. Yes! What's wrong with that? Well, for a start... People get hurt. Oh, I wasn't suggesting we get involved. I just want to see one, that's all. And some of your famous heroes. You do have some, don't you? It's not all dockside talk. And now, to the wizard's astonishment, Twoflower was almost pleading. Oh, yeah, we have them all right, said Rincewind hurriedly. He pictured them in his mind and recoiled from the thought. All the heroes of the Circle Sea passed through the gates of Ankh-Morpork sooner or later. Most of them were from the barbaric tribes near the Frozen Hub, which had a sort of export trade in heroes. Almost all of them had crude magic swords, whose unsuppressed harmonics on the astral plane played hell with any delicate experiments in applied sorcery for miles around. But Rincewind didn't object to them on that score. He knew himself to be a magical dropout so it didn't bother him that the mere appearance of a hero at the city gates was enough to cause retorts to explode and demons to materialise all through the magical quarter. No, what he didn't like about heroes was that they were usually suicidally gloomy when sober and homicidally insane when drunk. There were too many of them, too. Some of the most notable questing grounds near the city were a veritable hubbub in the season. There was talk of organising a rota. He rubbed his nose. The only heroes he had much time for were bravd, and the Weasel, who were out of town at the moment, and Hrun the Barbarian, who was practically an academic by hub standards in that he could think without moving his lips. Hrun was said to be roving somewhere turn-wise. Look, he said at last, have you ever met a Barbarian? Two Flowers shook his head. I was afraid of that, said Rincewind. Well, there... There was a clatter of running feet in the street outside and a fresh uproar from downstairs. It was followed by a commotion on the stairs. The door was flung open before Rincewind could collect himself sufficiently to make a dash for the window. But instead of the greed-crazed madman he expected, he found himself looking into the round red face of a sergeant of the watch. He breathed again. Of course. The watch were always careful not to intervene too soon in any brawl where the odds were not heavily stacked in their favour. The job carried a pension, and attracted a cautious, thoughtful kind of man. The sergeant glowered at Rincewind, and then peered at Twoflower with interest. "'Everything all right here, then?' he said. "'Oh, fine,' said Rincewind. "'Got, um, held up, did you?' The sergeant ignored him. "'This the, uh, 
Foreigner, then? he inquired. We were just leaving, said Rincewind quickly, and switched to Trob. Two flower, I think we ought to get lunch somewhere else. I know some places. He marched out into the corridor with as much aplomb as he could muster. Two flower followed, and a few seconds later there was a strangling sound from the sergeant as the luggage closed its lid with a snap, stood up, stretched, and marched after them. Watchmen were dragging bodies out of the room downstairs. There were no survivors. The watch had ensured this by giving them ample time to escape via the back door, a neat compromise between caution and justice that benefited all parties. "'Who were all these men?' said Two Flower. "'Well, you know, just men,' said Rincewind, and before he could stop himself, some part of his brain that had nothing to do took control of his mouth and added, "'Heroes, in fact.' Really? When one foot is stuck in the grey miasma of Hrull, it is much easier to step right in and sink rather than prolong the struggle. Rincewind let himself go. Yes, uh, that one over there is Eric Strong in the Arm. Over there is Black Zenel. Is Hrun the Barbarian here? said Twoflower, looking around eagerly. Rincewind took a deep breath. Um, that's him behind us, he said. The enormity of this lie was so great that its ripples did in fact spread out of one of the lower astral planes as far as the magical quarter across the river, where it picked up tremendous velocity from the huge standing wave of power that always hovered there and bounced wildly across the Circle Sea. A harmonic got as far as Harun himself, currently fighting a couple of gnolls on a crumbling ledge high in the Cadarac Mountains, and caused him a moment's unexplained discomfort. Two Flower, meanwhile, had thrown back the lid of the luggage and was hastily pulling out a heavy black cube. This is fantastic, he said. They're never going to believe this at home. Was he uh, going on about? said the sergeant doubtfully. He's pleased you rescued us, said Rincewind. He looked sidelong at the black box, half expecting it to explode or emit strange musical tones. Oh, said the sergeant. He was staring at the box too. Two Flower smiled brightly at them. "'I'd like a record of the event,' he said. "'Do you think you could ask them all to stand over by the window, please? "'This won't take a moment. "'And, um, Rincewind?' "'Yes?' Two Flower stood on tiptoe to whisper. "'I expect you know what this is, don't you?' Rincewind stared down at the box. It had a round glass eye protruding from the centre of one face and a lever at the back. "'Not wholly,' he said. "'It's a device for making pictures quickly,' said Two Flower. "'Quite a new invention. I'm rather proud of it. "'But, look, I don't think these gentlemen would... "'Well, I mean, they might be sort of apprehensive. "'Could you explain it to them? "'I'll reimburse them for their time, of course.' "'He's got a box with a demon in it that draws pictures,' said Rincewind shortly. "'Do what the madman says, and he will give you gold.' "'The watch smiled nervously.' I'd like you in the picture, Rincewind. That's fine. Two Flower took out the golden disc that Rincewind had noticed before, squinted at its unseen face for a moment, muttered, Thirty seconds should about do it, and said brightly, Smile, please. Smile, rasped Rincewind. There was a whir from the box. Right. High above the disc, the second albatross soared so high, in fact, that its tiny, mad orange eyes could see the whole of the world and the great, glittering, girdling circle sea. There was a yellow message capsule strapped to one leg. 
Far below it, unseen in the clouds, the bird that had brought the earlier message to the patrician of Ankh-Morpork flapped gently back to its home. Rincewind looked at the tiny square of glass in astonishment. There he was, all right, a tiny figure in perfect colour, standing in front of a group of watchmen whose faces were each frozen in a terrified rictus. A buzz of wordless terror went up from the men around him as they craned over his shoulder to look. Grinning, Two Flower produced a handful of the smaller coins Rincewind now recognised as quarter Rainu. He winked at the wizard. I had similar problems when I stopped over in the Brown Islands, he said. They thought the iconograph steals a bit of their souls. <laughs> Laughable, isn't it? Yeah, said Rincewind, and then, because somehow that was hardly enough to keep up his side of the conversation, added, I don't think it looks very like me, though. It's easy to operate, said Two Flower, ignoring him. Look, all you have to do is press this button. The iconograph does the rest. Now, I'll just stand over there next to Hrun, and you can take the picture. The coins quietened the men's agitation in the way that gold can, and Rincewind was amazed to find, half a minute later, that he was holding a little glass portrait of Two Flower, wielding a huge notched sword, and smiling as though all his dreams had come true. End of CD 1